Welcome back to another episode of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. This episode is a bit of a departure from our usual format. We've invited our executive producer, Stuart Halperin, to sit down with his friend, fellow movie lover, and media analyst, Paul DeGarabedian. If you're looking for recommendations on what to watch and some fun facts and stories behind these beloved movies, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, Hollywood Unscripted, Stuck at Home. From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another special episode of Hollywood Unscripted, Stuck at Home. I'm Stuart Halperin, executive producer of the show. You may have heard my name before if you listen to the credits, but this episode, we're getting to know each other just a little bit better. Like you, I love movies. And today, I'm excited to have the opportunity to share with you some thoughts on, you guessed it, movies. Joining me today is my longtime friend, Paul DeGarabedian, senior media analyst for Comscore and one of the nation's leading experts on movies and, frankly, all things entertainment. You may have seen Paul on your favorite television news programs and read his comments in print and online via the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, various Hollywood trade publications, and in many other places. Comscore and Paul recently launched a podcast called Many Screens, Big Pictures. On this podcast, Paul speaks with industry experts about trends in the entertainment industry. Paul and I have known each other for more than 25 years. We both love movies and miss going to the theaters and checking out the greatest and sometimes not the greatest films on the big screen. So while we're all stuck at home, we are exploring what movies to watch and enjoy on the smaller screen, or shall we say screens. Paul, welcome to Hollywood Unscripted, Stuck at Home. It's great to be here, Stu. I appreciate you having me on the show today. As you know, I'm a box office analyst, but I'm a movie fan first and foremost. I love films, filmmakers, and the art of movie making. And I, I think it's a really cool topic because we are indeed stuck at home to be looking at some movies, some cool movies that we loved in the theater. And now we'll go back over and over again at home and watch them again. And that's sort of the beauty of all this, that for me, it's the big screen that inspires me to watch the small screen. Let's start off with a movie called Roman Holiday. It's an all-time classic, Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck. Any thoughts on that one, Paul? Yeah, that's a classic. Now, I think we can both easily say we did not (laughs) see that in a movie theater first run. It came out in 1953. William Wyler, incredible director. He directed 14 actors to Oscar wins. 14. He directed Ben-Hur, the 1959 version. Wuthering Heights, Funny Girl. He was one of the most bankable directors of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and into the 60s. Pretty incredible career in this movie. People love this film, and it shows the range that Weiler had, directing something like Roman Holiday in 53, and then directing Ben-Hur in 59 shows quite a range in terms of his directorial style. And speaking of awards, Roman Holiday won many of them. Best Story Oscar for Dalton Trumbo, Best Actress Audrey Hepburn, Best Costume Design Edith Head, and lots of nominations, including the big one, Best Picture. This was one of those movies, it's iconic, the setting is iconic. It's one of the movies that you can put on at home and just feel good. 
Our next movie is Moonstruck, and I, I'm leaving it to Paul to take us on that one. Well, Moonstruck, look, Cher obviously was part of Sonny and Cher, the TV show. And at that time, there were just a few music artists that were able to cross over into film. But Moonstruck, it opened in 87 couple weeks before Christmas, made almost $80 million at the box office. Keep in mind, it's a lot of money for 1987. I think the snap out of it line, which I can't do justice, that she says to Nicolas Cage, because he's thunderstruck, if you will. It's just one of those films that was a romantic film that men and women could both enjoy because there were so many relatable characters. And Olympia Dukakis, who I, I think, Steve, obviously, the last name certainly rings a bell for a lot of people. Was she Mike Dukakis's Cousin? She won the Oscar and she is indeed Mike Dukakis's cousin. Cousin, okay, yeah. And he won the Democratic presidential nomination in that year. So there's a lot of ties between Hollywood and Washington. But yeah, I loved Moonstruck. I thought it was a really good movie. And Nicolas Cage at that time, I mean, he was definitely someone to look out for. He had done a lot of great roles. But this was like the prime time for him. I think he really was making his mark. And that was more of a supporting character, although sometimes you could argue how much some characters seem like they take over the movie. He did such a great job, and I have to give it up for Nicolas Cage in Moonstruck. But Nicolas Cage did not win an Oscar. It was Cher, Olympia Dukakis, and John Patrick Shanley who wrote the screenplay. So, Paul, let's move a few years later to a film that many people consider one of the greatest of all time, The Shawshank Redemption. Ah, the Shawshank. You know, people talk about a movie that when it comes on, they moving through the channels or on streaming and see Shawshank Redemption. It's a showstopper. You automatically stop. And if you start watching it, you can't stop watching it. I remember going to the trade screening of this, the exhibitor trade screening back in 94. It opened in September, late September of 94. And Everyone in that theater fell in love with it. Frank Darabont directing and writing. And it's just one of those movies. It's on top of everyone's list. Again, never got the love or the box office from the general public in its time. I think it's become a favorite of everyone. It's been on, obviously, broadcast TV over the years, streaming platforms. It's been everywhere. And it's a total favorite. And I just, I think the performances are so great. And there's so many memorable moments. What a great film. Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't get love from the Oscars either. But looking at it 25 plus, I believe, years later, it's often considered one of the greatest of all time. So I wanted to talk about two movies that have music ties. Let's talk about Purple Rain. Purple Rain, 1984. So following the footsteps of Cher, <laughs> Prince is in a movie and a very famous film and obviously the song is iconic and Prince one of the greatest underrated I think guitarists of all time in addition to being a phenomenal songwriter arranger a phenomenal talent who we lost way too soon and that movie opened in 84 it made 70.3 million dollars total which again in 1984 dollars is a lot of people going to see that movie it only opened with 7.7 .7 million, it made nine times that at $70 million. And what I mean by that is a multiple means when a film opens, whatever that gross is, what the final gross is, is a multiple of that. A lot of movies open huge. They might do two times that because they're so front loaded today. But back then, movies open in a thousand theaters, 900 theaters, and that was considered a wide theatrical release at that time. So movies had legs. Purple Rain had that for days, but that tie in between the music the soundtrack, 
and the story on screen. Of course, Apollonia, everybody knows her. She was a really big part of that movie's success. And again, it, it sort of blurred the lines between movies and music in a very powerful way. And people love that movie. Well, speaking of music and movies, I love a movie called The Social Network that I'd love for you to touch upon, Paul. I think Social Network was so interesting because Jesse Eisenberg so perfectly captured Mark Zuckerberg's character. And Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor did the score. Whenever you have Trent Reznor involved from Nine Inch Nails and Atticus Ross, brilliant producer, I think the music was a big part of that. I think for David Fincher, the director... He was trying to put a spin on what could have been just a straight-up biopic that could have been just pedestrian, let's put it that way. But Fincher, who's done Fight Club and Seven and Panic Room and Curious Case of Benjamin Button, he could take any he could take the phone book and turn it into something interesting, David Fincher. And I'm not saying that the social network story is boring by any means, but under his direction, I think it was really well made and Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor, I think, just did a great job with that score. They really brought it to life. And that score won the Oscar and got a couple other Oscars for this film, Adapted Screenplay from Aaron Sorkin and Editing. Tell us a little bit about Aaron Sorkin, who he's everywhere, so it seems. Yeah, Aaron Sorkin (laughs) is a phenom. I mean, the writing that he has done and the films and screenplays he's worked on, it's literally a who's who of movies. The films Aaron Sorkin has been involved with, A Few Good Men, think of that script, right? The sort of David Mamet-esque trial scene between Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson, just incredible. Enemy of the State, Charlie Wilson's War, Steve Jobs. So here you have Social Network and Steve Jobs. Very much Aaron Sorkin about the topical subjects and about real people. Molly's Game, I thought was great. I hope that's available on streaming because Molly's Game, so good. That came out in 2017. That was a movie tailor-made for Jessica Chastain. Aaron Sorkin, just a brilliant writer, completely in tune with what's going on during our times. And Social Network reflected that in a big way. Don't forget his TV work, including The Newsroom, a great show that didn't get enough love, in my view. Yeah. Well, speaking of the big screen, Raiders of the Lost Ark is probably the film that I think deserves the biggest screen you could find for it. Oh, that opening scene. (laughs) where Indy is stealing the treasure and that giant marble, I don't know what to call it, comes at him. That movie, that opening scene set the tone. That was 1981, the summer of 81. Obviously, the production team that worked on that were the architects of the summer movie season. So just a little interesting trivia. That movie opened with a mere 8.3 million and this is $81, went on to make almost $250 million in North America alone. That's a 30 times multiple. That movie captured people's imagination. I remember lines around the block. I remember people going back to see it over and over again. Harrison Ford, I mean, he was in Star Wars, but this was really where he became a, a full-on global movie star, at least in my opinion. He was so great in it. The humor, Karen Allen was a perfect foil for him. Just I could watch it right now. And I think that's a movie, again, at home. No offense to the small screen. 
But that's a movie I would pay money to see on the big screen again. There's a lot of theaters that do screenings of older titles, and that would be a great one to put back up on the big screen. I think people would be really excited to see that. And I think we were talking about this earlier offline, that we were trying to figure out what was the first movie to get a PG-13. A lot of people think it was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which was the follow-up to Raiders, but it wasn't. It was Red Dawn. They did that because I believe there was a scene in Temple of Doom where someone's heart is ripped out of their chest. I think parents were appalled that that would be in a PG movie, and thus they created the PG-13 rating and put that on Red Dawn, and that was the first official use of PG-13. And if you look for Raiders of the Lost Ark on the streaming services, it's now called Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, a little marketing, right, to get that uh, Indiana Jones, because it was just called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Nobody knew who Indiana Jones was before that movie came out. Yeah, it's a, that's a bit of marketing. And it did win a special achievement Oscar amongst other Oscars. Yep. It Definitely was a memorable moment of going to the movies when I was a younger guy. Yep. Moving on to Goodfellas, which you've told me is your favorite movie of all time. It's my favorite movie of all time. That list of my top five varies, but Goodfellas remains at the top. Although the Royal Tenenbaums, I don't know, sometimes it's a close match, but... When I watched Goodfellas recently, probably for the, I can't even count how many times I've seen Goodfellas, it was just great. And to see it on the small screen, it totally works because having seen it on the big screen, I know what that experience is like. And these characters, Martin Scorsese, the way he directed these actors, and if you have a chance, if you look at some of the behind the scenes footage, it's really interesting to see how Martin Scorsese works. And obviously, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Ray Liotta, and Joe Pesci's famous funny how, how am I funny? I can't really go into it because I'll get censored. But <laughs> Now, we we actually, you're allowed to say stuff like that on a podcast. Paul, yeah, so. I can't do Pesci justice. He drops F-bombs much better than I can. And in the Lethal Weapon movies, I remember Joe Pesci can just rattle off the F-bomb like nobody's business. And that's incredible. But that movie, and I think you could do a whole show on the endings of great movies, how sometimes they're not that great, that it's feels like sometimes it's hard to wrap up a movie, but this one was just great. I think the use of Sid Vicious singing My Way at the end and Joe Pesci just breaking the fourth wall, shooting his gun straight into the camera. And now, spoiler alert, in case you haven't seen it, but it's just a brilliant, perfect ending. The narration throughout is great. And let's not forget Lorraine Bracco, who is just, she's like us watching these characters. We relate to her because she's going through so much and she's absolutely brilliant in the movie. I could go on about this movie forever. It opened in 1990. Scorsese always has his masterpieces of, of each decade. And this just was a great way to kick off 1990. Opened with 6.4 million, went on to make almost $50 million. Goodfellas. Don't miss it. I love Goodfellas. And I also love The Irishman, which is also on Netflix. People complain about The Irishman. If you complain about The Irishman, just see Goodfellas. They're both excellent. You know, that's interesting that you say that because it often happens where works that are considered brilliant, like The Irishman, when you go back though and look at something like Goodfellas, which is transcendental, I really like The Irishman. But to me, Goodfellas, you go watch that and you're like, wow, that's just incredible. And watch Taxi Driver as well, which I believe is also on streaming and Raging Bull. And I don't want to be condescending in any way, but there are some younger viewers who I've talked to who've never seen Taxi Driver 
or Raging Bull. Raging Bull considered one of the greatest films of all time. And so Scorsese's body of work is just incredible. So you're always compared to yourself. And Scorsese's so good. He's raised the bar so high that often other movies, newer movies, although Wolf of Wall Street was brilliant too, but The Irishman, definitely worth watching. You can watch both at home and you have time because Irishman is like, what, four days? How long? <laughs> <laughs> it's a long movie, but it's worth watching. See a master filmmaker at work with incredible actors and of course, Robert De Niro, his muse for many years. If you're like us, you're looking for a way to make stay at home a little more special. Well, we're going to let you in on our secret. Join Rob Vices to get luxury cocktail kits, toys, tools, tech, and other incredible items delivered straight to your home on a monthly basis. The value is incredible. Your first box is going to be a $400 tequila curation, and you can sign up for as little as 99 bucks a month. Use the code PODCAST, and you'll save an extra 50 bucks at sign up. So head to robvices.com to bring exciting experiences safely to your door. Remember, use the code podcast and go to robbvices.com. Another movie that I wanted to bring up is called True Grit. And many people may remember the Coen Brothers version, but I really remember the John Wayne version, which I was about six or seven at the time. And it left really a major impact on my life. And I could just picture myself sitting in that movie theater. And John Wayne won the Best Actor Oscar. That's amazing. And and we all have those, right? Those movies we saw as kids that really made an imprint on us and our emotion. I know for you, I'll let you take the lead on this one because I know you love this movie. I think John Wayne and, and Kim Darby was so good. She, This was an actor. She was in so many movies at that time. She was such a great foil for him. And then, of course, in the update, you had Jeff Bridges playing Rooster. I think for Jeff Bridges, it had to be fairly daunting to recreate a character in the Coen Brothers version of True Grit that John Wayne had made famous. I mean, those are huge, literally huge boots to walk in. And he did it quite well. Matt Damon was in that movie, and it was a great cast in the Coen Brothers one. But the original, that set the stage. And look, John Wayne was an icon, still is huge movie star. And for a kid, I don't know how old you were at the time, that had to be clearly an impactful experience on you. And it was a Western. The Western kind of went away for a while. And that was one of the last ones in a long run of Westerns being one of the most popular genres of theatrical motion pictures. That's right. And Westerns, it's funny, people have certain genres that they automatically think they're not going to like. And then you see a good Western and they're some of the best movies ever made. 310 to Yuma, I thought was brilliant with Russell Crowe and Christian Bale and James Mangold, who directed Ford versus Ferrari, directed that. Great film and the fact that it was remade and done very well. I, I hope you agree. I like the remake. I just I had this imprint on my life from the original and I just always think about it from when I was six, seven, eight years old. And Westerns never totally went away, but they kind of went to be a much lower profile genre. Let's go to the Tom Cruise portion of our show, Jerry Maguire. Well, I think Jerry Maguire is just one of those films that people remember with a lot of nostalgia. And remember, it was 1996 when that movie came out. It opened with about 17 million, went on to make just over $153 million. Almost Famous is on my top five of all time. Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous. 
because it's so music related and so cool. I love that movie and I believe it's on streaming as well. But Jerry Maguire, look, Renee Zellweger, that was like her first major role, I, I believe. I hadn't really seen her before that. And then the little kid, Jonathan Lipnicki. That movie had everything going for it. And it was at a time when nobody really thought of Tom Cruise as having comedic chops, but he did. He was funny in the movie. He's vulnerable. That persona that he was just this maverick and Top Gun and more of an action star than to go down that path of working with Cameron Crowe, which by the way, I think Tom Cruise's career has been earmarked by his perfect ability to choose great directors like Oliver Stone, like Cameron Crowe. I mean, the list, uh, Steven Spielberg, the list goes on and on, always aligning himself with great directors. I think he clearly felt very safe being vulnerable with Cameron Crowe. I think the script was great. And of course, we can't forget Cuba Gooding Jr., who won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar, well-deserved. When we talk about people stealing a movie, to me, it's often the supporting actors who do that. Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight, and of course, Cuba Gooding Jr. in Jerry Maguire, and he was just great. And I love trivia, and Cuba Gooding Sr., the father of the Oscar winner from this film, was the lead singer, or one of the lead singers, for The Main Ingredient, which had the hit song, Everybody Plays the Fool. Oh, are you going to sing some of that for us? Uh, I think I'll spare the audience that. (laughs) Everybody plays the fool. Sometime. (laughs) But anyway, speaking of Tom Cruise, there's another one that's not funny, but really excellent called Minority Report. Yeah, loved Minority Report. Again, Steven Spielberg, brilliant director. And a lot of the things in that movie were very prescient. I think when he's walking through the subway and ads come up that know him and say his name directly to him, these digital ads, so cool. And this is, of course based on the Philip K. Dick story, The Minority Report. Philip K. Dick is just an incredible science fiction writer. And that movie, I think, brought together Tom Cruise and Steven Spielberg right in their sweet spot. They would later do War of the Worlds. But I think, again, Tom Cruise, usually the one kicking ass and taking names. In this one, he's suddenly on the run for a lot of different reasons. And there's some scenes in this movie that really push the envelope There's a scene where Tom Cruise has to have his eyes replaced and they have to take his eyeballs out. And (laughs) it's it's some tough stuff. And I remember at the time thinking, how is this movie PG-13? It's not rated R. I believe it's PG-13. But it really, the violence level in it is really, I think, cool because I like that kind of thing. But that movie had so much going for it. The production values... And Colin Farrell played his pursuer. It's a bit like a Western in that way. It's like the wrongly accused gunslinger being chased by the sheriff or something like that. It just works on so many levels. Minority Report, check it out. And it really, I think, is relevant today because it just shows how technology can get out of control and cause a lot of issues for people. So very relevant movie right now. I wanted to talk about Tootsie. It's about an actor who's so offensive that he has to dress up as a woman to get parts. What do you remember about Tootsie, Paul? Yeah, Tootsie, well, Sidney Pollack, one of the greatest directors of all time, but it was really interesting because that movie, like so many others, actually, Moonstruck opened December 16, 1987. Tootsie opened five years before on the same weekend and opened to $5.5 million, went on to make $176 million. That is a huge multiple, 32 times 
Tootsie played for weeks and weeks because putting on my box office hat, that's what I remember about that movie. It opened in under a thousand theaters. The greatest number of theaters that Tootsie was in was 1,222, according to our Comscore data. And it wound up doing 32 times its opening weekend. So that, you know, we talk about a movie lagging out or having legs. Tootsie, that just went on forever. That film just kept going and going. Great performances. I think the the whole conceit of the movie, people really got a kick out of that. And it's a great one. Again, if you want to escape, turn off the news and, and put on Tootsie. That, that's a great escape. And Jessica Lange won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. So the discussion of James Bond movies will be next and wrap up our show. One of them is a really old one and one of them is a fairly new one. So let's quickly talk about Goldfinger. Goldfinger is my favorite James Bond movie other than Skyfall. So they kind of bookend the new era with Daniel Craig and the classic Connery era. Goldfinger opened in 1964. It made $51 million, and that's in unadjusted dollars. Adjusted for inflation, which I ran a quick survey. 1964, the average ticket price for a movie, get this, was 92 cents. That means about 55 million admissions adjusted in today's gross, it would have made over 500 million in North America alone. That movie to me had everything that's quintessential about Bond from the Aston Martin to all the great gadgets. And that was the debut of the Aston Martin. He had a Bentley before James Bond in the previous movies. So that movie just brought it all together and Honor Blackman, she was incredible in that movie. She was a pilot. She had the name of Pussy Galore, as we all know, but she was a very strong, powerful woman in a movie that came out in 1964. She was a great foil for James Bond, didn't take any crap, could fly an airplane like no other, put him in his place, and was just had a great presence in that movie. She was incredible. And it won the Best Sound Editing Oscar. And well-deserved. You know, there was a lot of sound in that movie. A lot of machine guns out of the back of the, or the front of the Aston Martin. Or maybe it was the back. I don't remember. Anyway, that was the coolest car ever. And then I know which movie you're going to bring up. And the Aston Martin, I believe, the original Aston Martin, the early 60s Aston Martin, makes a return in this movie. Why don't you take that one, Paul? So Skyfall was such a good movie. Sam Mendes directing. Daniel Craig as James Bond. What a perfect film. I actually feel this movie should have been one of the contenders for best picture for the movies released in 2015. When they went to the 10 possible nominations, ostensibly because of The Dark Knight, this is a movie I think would have been perfectly placed there. Sam has won multiple Oscars for American Beauty many years before. And little trivia, he directed Daniel Craig in The Road to Perdition. He played real terrible, awful character in that one. But yeah, Skyfall had everything going for it from the title song for the film, from Adele, to an introduction in that movie to Bond where you think he's dead. He gets shot literally off the top of a train. Loved it. Sam Mendes, brilliant directing. And the original vintage Aston Martin is back in that movie. But something terrible happens to it later, which really bummed me out. It won two Oscars for the Adele song that was, I guess, co-written by Paul Epworth. And Best Achievement in Sound Editing. It's a common theme with the sounds. And we're all hoping that this pandemic ends and we get to see No Time to Die, the fifth Daniel Craig James Bond film in 2020. 
That's right. Well, I, I hope we will. They moved it to November. November in the modern era has been the traditional home, actually, of James Bond. I think only Tomorrow Never Dies or one of those since 95. That might have been in December. And all the other James Bond movies since then have all been November releases. So it's kind of the spiritual home. It was going to be April and it had to be moved because of the pandemic. I think that was a smart move. They were not going to be able to get the kind of global box office out of that movie. And the James Bond movies rely big time on the global and international grosses. And it's just making us wait a little bit longer. I think movie theaters will open at some point. And that'll be a key movie in that because No Time to Die was the first big high profile film to move its date to the future. And I hope and everyone hopes that it'll make that date and that by then things will be clear, but everyone has to wait and see. Nobody knows what the future holds right now, but what we can do is stay home, which you should do. Get your box of popcorn and watch all these movies that we've talked about and more. Yeah, I could say all the movies that we've talked about during this podcast are great movies without any hesitation. Most of them had some, or maybe all of them had at least had Oscar nominations. I loved every single one of them, and I think you did too, or most of them, Paul. And we hope that we're not stuck at home for much longer because both of us love going to the movies. And frankly, I want to just be entertained and all these movies will really entertain you. I agree. The movies we're talking about, yeah, they're definitely going to let people escape. And that's what great movies do. And I think the the point I want to make in all this is that these are the movies we fell in love with in movie theaters. And we're going to fall in love with movies again in the movie theater down the road. We just don't know when that'll be. But we can all agree that right now, this is a great pastime is to catch up on America's pastime, going to movies, but just for now at home. On that note, thank you, Paul DeGarabedian, for being an amazing guest on Hollywood Unscripted, Stuck at Home. We hope to see you and hear you again very soon. And for everyone else listening, looking forward to our next episode and be safe. Thank you, Stuart. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Combe Media. This episode was hosted by Stuart Halperin with guest Paul DeGarabedian, produced by Jenny Curtis, edited by A.J. Mosley. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. <laughs>